If you've got it on your phone, that's great. Uh, you can get an app, come and see them if you don't know which app to get. Otherwise, there's a... Young people, there were these old things called books. They were paper and ink. They used to work pretty well. They've got a bunch of them up the back if you want to um, grab a Bible. Matthew 25 is where we're, where we're at today. Closing stages of, of Matthew's Gospel. Really the crescendo of, of Matthew's Gospel. Things are rapidly moving uh, to a head. Before we get started, though, into Matthew's Gospel, I want to share with you a bit of a story from, from my family, a bit, of a bit of an anecdote that I think speaks to today's message. You see, like uh, so many young Aussie blokes growing up, my sons played cricket growing up. Now, I know not all of you uh, grew up in Australia, but when you grow up in Australia, uh, Richie Benno was the soundtrack to the Australian summer. And, uh, and our young boys played, uh, played cricket when they were growing up. And the trouble was my, my young and beautiful wife, they don't know I'm sharing this story, by the way. It's always a bit of a surprise when they come to church and I share an anecdote from our family. But my young and beautiful bride uh, didn't grow up watching cricket. She, she didn't know the difference between a good forward defensive stroke and a, an off drive. She, she, didn't know, she didn't know the linger. My young and beautiful wife didn't know what the right thing to say from the sideline. So when, uh, when Seb or Elijah were playing a little bit conservatively, she had to say things like, oh, whack it, Seb, or uh, just, just hit it, Elijah. Uh, and I had to, I had to gently uh, educate my, my young and beautiful bride that it was traditional in Aussie parlance, in cricketing lingo, uh, that when you're an Australian growing up and a batsman is proving to be somewhat conservative, when a batsman is, is failing to take any sort of risks, when a batsman is being boring, what do you say, Sue? What does an Aussie yell out from the sideline? <laughs> Have a go, you mug. <laughs> Have a go, you mug, is traditional Aussie parlance that you might call out from the sideline from the cricket to a batsman that is failing to be entertaining, that is failing to have a go, that is failing to really take any risks and score any, any runs. So our, our parable from Jesus today could well be summarised as Jesus telling us to have a go, you mug. It's Jesus basically telling us to, to have a crack, um, to say, have a, have a red-hot go. And I know not all of us grew up here in, in Australia, but so we might say other things like, well, don't die wondering. You might also heard a similar sentiment as, don't die with the music still in you. The, the, the idea is that you've got to live life to the full. The idea is that you don't want to waste any opportunities that life provides you. You want to live life to the full, not miss an opportunity, take every moment that life presents, to, to grab it with both hands and, and to run with it. Well, it seems as though Jesus subscribed to this way of life, this approach to life of, of having a go, of, of having a crack. In, in our parable today, uh, Jesus challenges you and I, his followers, to make the most of, of, of what we're given, to make the most of every opportunity, lest what we have is actually taken from us. Let's have a look at Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be reading from verse 14 through to, uh, through to verse 30. This is commonly known as uh, the parable of, of the talents. For it will be like a man, he's talking about the kingdom of God, by the way, following on from the previous parable from last week. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and 
traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. The master said to them, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you were knew to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you'd scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So, take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he who and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant out into the outer darkness. In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ooh, let's pray. Loving Lord, open our eyes this morning, we pray. We pray that you might use this moment to teach us, to humble us, to grow us. We pray that we might not be simply hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We pray that my words might be your words. We pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. And all the people said, Amen. Like most preachers, Matthew has a couple of favorite themes he likes to really hammer home. Uh, Matthew is hammering it away at a couple of points over and over. And it is in very much the case that if you had to give a brief summary of what Matthew's message was, it would be actually be the easiest of all of the, the four canonical Gospels. Um, Matthew is writing, of course, for a largely Jewish audience. He's writing, for, he's writing for the insiders. And so if you had to sort of think of Matthew's sort of core, distill his message down, Matthew would be wanting to tell us something like this. I think if you're wanting to say the church, uh, the church on earth now consists of, of both genuine followers and pretenders. But it's not our job to try to sort them out. The sorting will be done the Messiah, by the Messiah when he comes in his glory. And what he will be assessing all of these followers and pretenders by is not their religious pedigree. Not by any church membership card, not by any baptism card you might be able to pull out of your, your back pocket, but by the way in which we responded to God's amazing grace and by the way we put it 
into practice in our lives. There's a strong sort of anti-Pharisee sort of vibe running through Matthew's gospel, as we know. He, he uses them as a bit of a foil, doesn't he? He uses them as examples of, of people who talk the talk but fail to walk the walk. And whilst Jesus at times does side with the Pharisees theologically, he says that even some of the moral reprobates from outside, the outsiders you might not think of as being insiders, maybe they might actually find it easier to get into the great banquet of the kingdom of heaven than those that are perhaps on the inside. And this year, ever since we finished our series in Exodus that we started the year, we've been, broadly speaking, following Matthew's gospel this year on each Sunday. We're now coming to the climax of Matthew's gospel. Uh, in this chapter, Jesus gives us uh, two parables about God's kingdom, two parables about God's kingdom, and gives us a description of what it will be like when he returns in his glory. Uh, the two back parables are indeed about his, his return, and indeed a, a, there's a description of it, so tune in next week to hear more. But he will give us a description of what it will be like on that, on that fateful day, that judgment day, uh, when, when he returns. Indeed, if you were with us here last Sunday, you'll know that um, just before this parable is another parable about ten bridesmaids uh, who had the job of waiting for the bridegroom's arrival to celebrate and to welcome him into his, into his feast, into, his, into his, his party, so to speak. And it reiterated Matthew's point, along with today's parable, that you can't always, you can't always pick the real disciples from the pretenders, but that at his arrival, the Messiah will sort them all out. Some will be found faithful and true, while some will be shown to be trying to sort of fudge it, to get by on second-hand faith. And straight after today's parable, we had a very vivid description of that judgment itself with a detailed and somewhat terrifying description of, of what's going to happen on that day. And we have to, we're going to be having the terrible realisation that how we treated others will be deemed to actually have been how we treated Jesus himself. So in between those two is today's reading, often known as the parable of the, of the talents. Um, the different translations use different words. Some of them use bags of gold, but traditionally we, we know it as the parable of the talents. The story is, of course, about a wealthy man, a wealthy entrepreneur that, that heads off on a very long journey and entrusts three of his, his servants to, we entrust them with huge amounts of money, as a matter of fact, to do with as they see fit. He says, to one he left five talents, to another two, and to another the one talent. Now, what you need to know, contextually speaking, church, is that we're dealing with extremely large amounts of, of money here. In Jesus' day, a, a talent um, was a, it was actually a unit of measurement, it was actually a weight, so it was actually a cord, a precious metal, so it translated into an incredibly large amount of money. Just the one talent translated into about 15 to 20 years' wages. So we are talking about a million dollars at least, millions of dollars in today's Aussie dollars. That is what we're talking about here. We're not talking about petty change. So... Just by the way, there's no sense here that the word talent has changed meaning and, and because of preachers like myself down through the years have preached on this, on this passage. So a talent in English has come to mean, of course, an ability, doesn't it? 
um, because of this very parable, by the way. But back in the day, right, a talent you meant to think money, and you were meant to think an extremely large amount of, of money. Uh, so a servant being entrusted with this amount of money, it would have been quite unusual. Um, it would have actually shocked Jesus' hearers when he first told this parable. Um, these must have been very trusted servants indeed, right? Very trusted servants indeed. would have been such an enormous responsibility, which I think should give us pause for us to think, uh, am I trustworthy? Does, does the Messiah find me trustworthy? Can he trust me with, with a large investment like this? Um, the fact that he actually has given these three servants of his complete control over such large sums of money also tells us something. It tells us that, um, and we sense it was for a very long period of time as well. It's a large sum of money of what we sense was a very for a long period of time. You get the sense that the master doesn't really sense that these servants of his are underlings. He really sees them as partners. He's partnering with them. Right? The master in this parable, in effect, has made these servants of his business partners. So again, maybe ask yourself at this point, am I a, am I a worthy partner? Am I really partnering with, with Jesus? Am, am I partnering with him or am I just wanting to hold back and just sort of not take any responsibility? Let's remember that as this story unfolds. We're not giving any, they weren't given any specific instructions from the master. He simply trusts them and goes on his long journey um, to be wise stewards and, and, and he departs. So the story continues and the boss uh, returns home. The boss comes back after his long absence and discovers that two of his three servants, uh, come business partners of course, have, have doubled, doubled his money. Now we don't know how they did it, um, but I think we can be sure of a couple of things. Firstly, they took some risks. They would have to have taken some risks and they worked hard with what they had. In order to double the master's money, it was a fairly safe bet. They worked hard at it and they would have had to have taken some risks along the way. They are commended. They are rewarded. Uh, but this third guy, he makes no attempt to do anything but simply preserve the money that he'd been entrusted with. So he goes and finds a safe spot, digs a hole, and buries it. He knows that he can't gain anything that way, but he knows that he's not going to lose anything by doing it this way either. So at this point, you should be able to see a few very telling differences in the heart attitudes of these three servants. Think about these things. The first two are determined to make a profit. The third is simply determined to not make a loss. The first two are willing to work hard, to take risks. The third doesn't want to risk or work. He just wants to hang on to what he's got. The first two are happy to have received the gift which is not so much the money itself. It's not so much the money itself. The gift is more so the master's trust, is it not? The third refuses this gift of trust. Here, have what's yours, is what he says. The first two recognize the partnership being offered by the master. The third rejects the partnership that's being offered by the master. The first two desire to advance the master's kingdom. But the third has no interest in really extending the master's kingdom at all. The first two saw the money or the gift as, as an opportunity. The third sees it as a, well, frankly, a bit of a problem, doesn't he? 
The first two allow the master's gifts to change their lives. The third refuses to let the master's gift touch him at all. So the story goes that this third lazy servant is given an almighty dressing down and, and is fired. Now, one of the common ways of missing the point of this parable, I think, is to focus on the fact that the condemned man was only given one parable to start with. I think that's a mistake. In fact, I often wish Jesus had sort of reversed the roles here. I often wish that it had been the guy with the five talents that simply dug a hole and did nothing. But the point of the story has really got nothing to do with how much each servant started with, other than to acknowledge, I think. And it's an important acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement that our, we each have different starting points in our life, and it doesn't dictate what we can make with our lives. The first employee got two and a half times as much as the second employee, but both achieved the same percentage returns, didn't they? And they're both equally rewarded for their faithfulness and for their trustworthiness. The third bloke, however, uh, could have been the one that had been given the most, but he still would have been condemned for making nothing of it. So the focus of this story naturally falls on the reasons why the third man did nothing with his money. He tries to explain himself, doesn't he? He tries to sort of justify himself. He says, oh, I knew you were only so happy, too happy to, to reap profits from other people's work without contributing, and, and I know how harsh you are on those who fail. So I, I was afraid, and so I kept your money locked away, nice and safe. Here it is, have it back. Well, the first question is, I think, uh, is that really a fair assessment of the boss? Really? Because if he's right, then maybe his course of action might be quite reasonable, might be quite justified. But, but I think this story requires us to conclude that he had actually misjudged the boss. Isn't, is the boss really reaping where he didn't sow? I, I don't think so. It's, the boss put all his money in himself. This boss had clearly sown. The profits he reaped were from his own money. And not only that, he doesn't seem to be taking the profits for himself anyway, does he? There's no report of him taking the money and going off and buying the latest model donkey or buying himself a flash new pair of sandals or buying a, a villa in, in Rome or whatever it is, a holiday on the holiday coast. He doesn't do any of that at all, does he? He actually reinvests the money. He orders that he be given to the man who has, who has ten the trouble with this guy, I think, is that he, he doesn't recognise a gift when it's handed to him. Because he doesn't recognise the gift that he's given, or the generosity of the gift giver, um, that he lives in fear. He lives in fear, thinking that this is some sort of test from the boss. This is the person who sees God as the harsh examiner in the sky. You know that person? Perhaps you know this guy who thinks God is watching, hoping for us to catches tripping up, making a mistake, eager to find a reason to, to condemn us. That's not the God that I know. Amen? So fearful of slipping up, I think such a person is, he tragically never takes any sorts of risks. They never risk engaging in the fullness of life that is offered to them, really living. They never really get on with the job of living like they were made to live by the God who made them, who knows them, and who who loves them, has gifted them with all manner of gifts. I have to say, church, I know a lot of Aussies like this. I know a lot of Aussie blokes who go through their life like this, a lot of Aussie, older Aussie guys who 
went through their entire life living this way. In fact, I've buried a few of them down through the years. Old Reg was a good bloke. Yeah, but he didn't really do much for anybody else, frankly. He held on to what he was given tight for himself. I see a lot of younger Aussie blokes heading down the same path and their, and their wives and girlfriends too, I've got to say. All very nice people, don't get me wrong. All perfectly, perfectly nice people, but just living shallow lives. They plot along through life. Perhaps with all the fancy toys, by the way. Some of them are the, the five talent people. They've been richly blessed here in Australia in 2023, yeah? They've got all the toys, but ultimately living dull lives. Shallow lives, pedestrian, mediocre lives, I believe. Perfectly acceptable to society, of course, but never really taking any risks to ask the big eternal questions of life and of faith, of death. Never really putting up their hands to take on a real risky venture for the God who made them and who loves them. And think too, church, that I think that if that they think a life spent following a Jesus is boring a pedestrian, they might say the same of you and I. I think many of them look at my life, your life, and think, well, that's, they're living a boring life. If they think that, if the punters outside on the street in the marketplace think that of you or I, we're not doing a very good job of modelling the abundant life in Christ that we have, are we? Let's allow that to be a challenge for us. Are we modelling an abundant life for the punters out on the street to see? So they arrive at the judgment and hand their life back, essentially unlived, I believe. And in doing so, don't you, can you see how they actually insult the giver of life himself? It's actually an insult, isn't it? To hand back what you've been given. Say, here, have it back. I don't want it. They accuse God of being harsh and ungenerous. They treat God's gracious gifts as though it's some kind of poisoned chalice and refuse to even take a sip. I think God recognises that we're all different. Some of us got a dream start in life. Some of us were blessed with a Christian loving home, loving parents. We were given everything we need to thrive and to succeed in life. Others of us have had to overcome significant challenges in life. God understands that. He, he knows that. Not everything is expected to be the same for for everyone. Some of us have known nothing but love. Some of us have been ripped off and trampled upon by life. God knows. God knows what we've been dealt with in our individual lives. And we're not all going to be capable of generating exactly the same amount of love and compassion and self-sacrifice and generosity. But the boss in Jesus' story didn't condemn the second guy, the second worker, for only making two talents. He doubled his money exactly the same as the five talent guy. It was only the guy that refused to have a go that is condemned. I think what this parable says, if you try to hang on to what you've got, if you just try to hang on tightly and preserve what God has given you, you're going to lose it. This parable teaches us that it is only by letting go that we receive. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. Think of that prodigal that lost son, that said in the Greek, by the way, to his father, uses the me three times 
in that fateful sentence, give me my share of what is coming to me. Give me my share of the inheritance that is rightfully mine. What does he do? He squanders it. He loses it. And it's only by emptying himself, humbling himself, and coming back to the Father. It's only at that point that he's welcomed into the feast. Well, think of Jesus himself, friends. Think of Jesus himself, who empties himself. As we heard a couple of weeks ago, the king without a coin, the king of the universe without even a coin, without even a place to lay his head, emptied himself, gave his very life, friends, in order that you might be welcomed into the banquet, welcomed into the heavenly feast with him. It's only by letting go, taking a risk, that we will receive. I want to leave you with a story from the life of uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln, that wonderful American president. I heard a story this week that he went to church with one of his aides one Sunday. And on the way home, his aide asked, uh, asked Abe, what did you think of the sermon, sir? He responded, well, I thought it was very well thought through, powerfully delivered and eloquent. And the attendant said, oh, so you thought it was a very good sermon then? No, said the president. It failed because the preacher did not ask us to do anything great. So with that in mind, I would hate to make such a mistake this morning. I want to ask you to do something great. I want to ask you this morning to indeed take a risk. I want to challenge you, ask you, have you been partnering with God? Does God see you as a partnership in building his kingdom? You've been given all kinds of gifts, uh, to further his kingdom, some more than others, it's true. And the gifts doesn't have to be money. Let's think broader than simply money. Money, yes, of course. Some of us have been blessed financially. But think broadly more so than simply money. Think of your spiritual gifts, like we were challenged ourselves to think about a couple of weeks ago. What spiritual gifts have you been blessed with that you can use, put into practice to build God's church, to build his kingdom? Think of your time, which we've all been given a certain amount of years here on this earth to use for, for his glory, not for your own. Think of your education. Some of you have been blessed with a wonderful education. You've all been blessed. We've all been blessed with some measure of health and, and strength and intellect, perhaps, Things, uh, things like just your influence on the people around you. We all have a, some sort of sphere of influence in our family and friends group. We've been blessed perhaps with a, with a house. Some of us have been blessed with a car, maybe a couple of cars in my case. How are we using these things that God has entrusted to us for a period for his glory? What are you doing with all those things is the question that I want to ask you today. What are you doing with what he has given you? If you were to face Jesus today, if he were to return, if the master were to return today, what would you tell him about how you have used the gifts that he's given you? And let's for a moment get beyond just thinking about this even on individual terms. Let's think about it as a church family. The church in the marketplace, not just on a Sunday morning, but right throughout the week, all of our small groups and ministries, how are we using what God has given us to build his kingdom? The question Matthew would put, the question Jesus puts to us is, what are you doing with that gift that you've been given? 
And what are we doing with the gift that we've been given? Are we going to focus our energies on simply trying to preserve what we've been given? That is a, a nice, cosy, religious, social club. And I like coming here to be with you on a Sunday. But church has got to be more than simply gathering here in a holy huddle on a Sunday. Are we willing to risk it all for God's sake? To grow his kingdom by stepping out into the marketplace in new and risky ways. To share the good news of a saviour who wants to partner with us in life. Are you simply trying to keep that comfy life that you've been blessed with? Keep it intact, unsullied, unspoilt. Not risking any sort of action that might risk in you losing face or losing any sort of pleasure. Or are you going to live it openly and generously? Ready to give it away in love and in mercy. Think of a handful of sand. The tighter you hold onto it, the more it just slips through your fingers. Are you going to turn to your, turn your prayers in here on a Sunday into a life of reckless love, of radical hospitality, extravagant generosity outside these doors Monday to Friday? Jesus, Jesus is challenging us here to make sure that what we do in here isn't just words. We've got to Walk the walk and not just talk the talk. The real risk involved in, in taking this challenge is actually to not do anything at all. That's the really risky path I would suggest to you this morning. We're all going to get hit from time to time. We're all going to take some losses every once in a while. To risk love is indeed to risk loss. And we need to know that from the outset. But I want us to know that it's worth it, friends. That this risk is, is worth it. For as those first two employees in the story today uh, discovered and proved, if we can shake off the shackles of fear, shake off the shackles of timidity, and invest all that we've been given fully in life, we will one day be commended as a good and faithful servant. Won't that be a wonderful day to hear those wonderful words? Well done, good and faithful servant. Be welcomed into the feast, welcome into the banquet to live extravagantly with our God forever and ever. Our ship, you might have heard, is safe at harbour, but that is not what ships are designed for, are they? So don't, let's not be the ship, church, that, is, that never leaves the shore. Let's, as individuals and as a church family, lift the anchor, push out into the deep, and have a crack, have a crack at growing what God has given us for His glory. Amen? Let's pray. Our loving Lord, we pray for boldness this morning. We pray for courage. We pray for wisdom and discerning to know how to invest what you've given us, how to partner with you with the many gifts, with the many talents that you've bestowed upon us. Help us to know that it is by doing nothing that is the risky strategy. Help us to partner with you in growing your kingdom, in bringing about your kingdom here on earth. May we lay hold of your kingdom with both hands and may we experience fullness of abundant resurrection life in this life and the next by partnering with Jesus in growing his kingdom wherever you may place us this week. In Jesus' name. All the people said...